Um, hi class, uh, this is your instructor, Pat Ardonez, um, and I'm here today with one of my good friends and colleagues, um, Danielle Mireles. Um, she is currently finishing up her dissertation um, in the Grad School of Education here at UC Riverside, and she as also, can I can I say she is also a uh, roller derby athlete, professional, um, and and, and I'm, I'm a fan, even though I don't know anything about roller derby. <laughs> um, and uh, what else can I say? Um, and she is also uh, what else? What else are you? <laughs> she is also um, a teacher education educate. Uh, she, she is also a teacher educator. She is currently teaching um, the uh, language class at, uh, for a, um, teacher education students here at UCR. So um, I guess like Danielle, uh, that intro kind of like sucked. <laughs> but I guess like, um, can you share um, some of your educational journey, um, what you do, and uh, some of your research dissertation project with us, and maybe like make that introduction a little bit better. <laughs> you left out when I once saved your life, but that's okay. Oh, yeah, she totally saved my life. We almost were in a car accident while we were carpooling, and um, I'm a, like I really trust her, her driving skills. <laughs> That was that was amazing. We were almost we were, we were almost dead yeah. <laughs> or injured. <laughs> but yeah, she yeah. Thank you. <laughs> um, so educational journey. So grad school was not something that was on the map for me in terms of my life plan. I honestly thought grad school for a long time was something for trust fund babies uh, and not something that students of color do and go to um, because I didn't see much representation in graduate programs so I had very like Ivy League perceptions of what that that would look like so I was born in Pasadena grew up in Burbank I went to Burbank Unified um, school district I've talked to Pat about this a little bit. I'm um, a monolingual English speaker, though I am um, so Mexican and white. So I have a parent who is Mexican, I have a parent who's white, so I, I mixed. And I was put into an English language learner program <laughs> in first grade uh, because the school, um, when my parents asked, said that I had a Hispanic sounding name. So they thought that I didn't speak English and they put me in there. And honestly, a lot of my peers spoke English or English and Spanish. Um, so it was probably early on when I realized there was something going on with the school district, even though I didn't really have like a conceptualization of things like racism or monolingualism or these terms we talk about in education. So yeah, I went to school through the Burbank Unified School District. Uh, I wasn't a particularly exceptional student. Uh, 
remedial classes, some honors later in high school uh, because I realized that I needed those courses to go to college. But I didn't know how to apply to college, so my senior year I found out that I needed something called the SAT and that I was supposed to have applied like in fall. So I went to my local community college for three years. Uh, while I was there, I had first decided to do nursing because it was just a degree people were talking a lot about during the time I was in school, which would have been about 2009. And I just, I sort of just randomly chose it. I was like nursing. Uh, I have a passion for writing that I was just told not to follow because it didn't make money. Um, so yeah, I went, to, I went to community college for three years. I, I took ASL, American Sign Language, and I had a professor who told me about the deaf studies program at Cal State Northridge. And I was really interested in deaf culture and American Sign Language and community advocacy work. So I decided to do that. I wanted to do disability studies at this point. Uh, I'm someone who identifies as having multiple disabilities. At the time, um, I was only diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder. I also have a neurological movement disorder. That's rare. It's called cervical dystonia. Uh, but I didn't have that. I didn't have a diagnosis for that at the time. But deaf studies seemed sort of to align with a lot of the values of disability studies. But they're separate. Deaf people don't necessarily consider themselves as being disabled, uh, it's a separate community. So I went to CSUN, I graduated. CSUN was all right. <laughs> I don't know what to say. It's what you make it. I had to work full time going to school. Uh, I was with a single parent who um, was really struggling financially. So I was taking over some of like the head of household responsibilities with younger siblings. So it was a lot of balancing, but I graduated after taking summer classes, because I just didn't want to be in college for more than five years at that point. I went into the workforce uh, for a year, and I realized that with a bachelor's, I couldn't find anything in deaf studies because I didn't want to be a sign language interpreter, and there weren't very many positions outside of interpreting for my degree, so I ended up working at a nonprofit for adults with disabilities. Um, on college campuses supporting students with disabilities. And uh, it became pretty apparent that I was going to either have to work up the ladder social mobility wise, starting at like minimum wage with a bachelor's or I could go back to school. So I applied for a master's program. I guess I should mention during this, I had started doing research with a professor at CSUN. Uh, on deaf studies, uh, Dr. Michael Carter in sociology. I had taken a summer class with him and he had talked about identity theory and I thought it was really interesting and we talked about deaf identity. So I had been doing this research with him, but I, I didn't see myself as a researcher. I was just like, love of writing. <laughs> enjoy, enjoy research, but uh, not something I wanna do, much to the disappointment of Dr. Carter. Um, so yeah, I went to work was still in contact with Dr. Carter because we were writing. He was encouraging me to go to grad school. That's when I said that it's for rich trust fund babies. And he's like, no, it's not. People go, like you could go, go apply. So I applied to UCLA and UCR. I was waitlisted for UCLA, but accepted into UCR. So I went and did my master's here and faculty on this campus 
Uh, specifically, Dr. Rita Coley had mentioned the PhD program, and that might be something I want to do. And I still wasn't sure um, if that was something I wanted to do until about maybe halfway through my master's program, which was a one-year program. Uh, but then I decided I did really love research. I love reading research. I love theory. Uh, it's a much better fit for me. And I found being here that I've had a lot of supportive faculty um, supporting my educational journey, which has been awesome. So here I am five years later at UCR uh, studying. I specifically study race and disability. So my dissertation work is on the experiences of disabled college students of color who are attending four-year universities. So specifically looking at people at four years uh, and to be in the study, students had to identify as being a person of color, so black indigenous POC, or, uh, and also had to identify as having a disability, which I left broad because I think a lot of disability definitions are gatekeeping mechanisms to keep people from getting resources, particularly people of color. So anyone in the study who said they identified having a disability, whether that was diabetes, deafness, uh, um, allergic reactions, so like severe allergic reactions to foods, uh, were invited to come and do interviews. So, segue. Nice, that was, that was awesome. Thanks, Danielle. Um, yeah, I think I think that halfway, that's when you met me and then your life completely changed, right? I'm kidding. Changed when I met Pat. <laughs> no. Um, but yeah, so I, I, what's up? I said we roughly came in at the same time, a year apart. Yeah. So um, I guess like what I wanted to, um, so like I, I want to like um, probe more about your um, work with disabled college students of color in the university. Can you um, tell us a little bit about some general findings that you think, um, so this, this, this recording is for uh, future teachers. Um, and so what, what are some findings that without like giving us too much right because you're currently writing it um top secret, top secret <laughs> but you um but you did do a talk um, about it with us um at some point during the quarter right so what is something um that you want to like so what like something from the findings that you want teacher educator or uh, teachers or future educators or also or educators also include administration, counselors, maybe like textbook writers, policy makers, the whole, the whole group, the whole <laughs> educational world. What do you, what is something that you, you want them to take away from your findings? Yeah, well, just thinking through disability that a lot of the ways we've been taught to think about disabilities are around legal definitions. And that's not necessarily how the disability community identifies itself. And it's often this mechanism of policing and gatekeeping, which really affect black indigenous people of color from accessing these resources, even though we know things like um, black and brown people are more likely to live closer to EPA zones um, that exceed federal standards. So there's these exposures to toxins. We know uh, black indigenous people of color are more likely 
to be diagnosed with disabilities, like disproportionality in uh, K through 12. We also know uh, that now the, you know, like long-term health ramifications of things like racism um, that can affect our health. But to qualify with a disability, it's really through these, um, and not that it's all bad, right? Because it did lead way to things like the Rehabilitation Act, uh, the Americans with Disabilities Act, but these definitions definitely have this like line of what is disability and what isn't. And we know that there are a lot of things that are what Puar would say are debilitating to communities of color, uh, which aren't necessarily considered disability, but people and communities would benefit from having access to some of these resources. So that's that. Um, I found when I was interviewing disabled students of color that a lot of them did not want to identify as having a disability because of the stigma. Uh, or they had been told or felt like they'd been told that they weren't disabled enough. This was even with things with that could be physical disabilities. So things we might think of more as being disability like deafness, particularly male students of color were not comfortable saying they had a disability. Um, and one of my participants, pseudonym, Bea, <laughs> any names I say will be pseudonyms, Bea actually said specifically that, you know, she found empowerment being Latina, she found empowerment from her income background, growing up low income, and those are things she took pride in, but she just couldn't find that empowerment having a disability. So that's sort of the campus for a lot of students of color is that they might have, you know, like a lot of pride about their racial or ethnic identity, but disability is something they don't feel pride with. Um, and Mia Mingus, who is a disability scholar activist, uh, talks about that this is pretty common in communities of color that people might be uncomfortable identifying as disabled because when you think about stigma, um, particularly if you're a person of color, you're female, uh, maybe you're queer, that it can be hard to add another layer of stigma onto that. So it was definitely something I was seeing. I was also seeing in terms of interactions uh, that we really quickly tell students of color to go talk to other people. So maybe or disabled students of color. So maybe the student of color reaches out to you about some tension or things that are happening in the classroom like racial microaggressions, we might be receptive, but if they reached out about disability, they were turned away and told to go to offices or seek out special resources in ways that a lot of times they weren't even registered with the disability services office or they had tried to go register and they encountered hostile environments um, within those offices, especially when you think about things like affirmative action, these perceptions that students of color gained, gained the system. That was also true for disabled students of color, that they were perceived as gain, gaining the system and getting resources through their disability services offices on their campuses. Uh, so that's something that's very real for them. What else? What else? Awesome. <laughs> and I like, I, I just went for the for our listeners, I'm kidding. For the students, um, like, like some big concepts were dropped, like um, uh, racial microaggressions. Um, what else? Actually, that was the only one. Um, but I would, I would encourage you if, uh, to look it up. Um, and we'll also discuss it at some point. So um, we haven't actually discussed that yet. Like last week, the previous week, we uh, we just unpacked what um, whiteness and uh, anti-black racism is. 
Well, I think it would be a great segue into like racial microaggression. So the perceptions that brown and black students especially are perceived as intellectually inferior. So we do understand that as being a racial microaggression of so a student's on campus and there's an assumption um, if it's a black student that they got in on a, a sports scholarship. That would be a racial microaggression. It's the assumption that they got in for some other reason besides like intellectual merit. And we could problematize this idea of merit all day, <laughs> but that it wasn't based on intellectual ability. And so something I'm doing in my paper, my dissertation is I'm talking about that this is not only a form of ableism this or racism it's a form of ableism so the belief that students of color are intellectually inferior is a form of ableism um and that these specific assumptions are are really troubling for students of color who do have intellectual differences so uh for a long time in our field critical like do you do crt officially i know you're like yeah. all over with um you're like yeah I started out, I, my framework started out with CRT and then I found something better, which is theoretical battle. <laughs> um, but uh, we haven't, wait, what's up? You're familiar with critical race. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Oh, oh, I should talk to my students about critical <laughs> race theory. Yes, I will introduce that. It's a five week course, man. <laughs> So critical race theory, essentially we're centering race and racism in, the, in our analyses. So we're listening to lived experiences. So a lot of times data is, I did a survey, I have some numbers, but the numbers don't tell us anything. And they don't really allow for resistance, right? Like numbers don't tell us when students are resisting oppressive structures, but talking to students can tell us those things. So essentially centering race and racism. I do a branch of CRT called disability critical race theory which uh, centers not only disability and ableism, but also race and racism alongside each other, because there is this history of, well, racism has in theory become covert. I know that's really arguable during this time, but it's sort of, it's not appropriate to be blatantly racist before, <laughs> right? Like, um, but that, yeah, so it's not acceptable to be like blatantly racist, but it is acceptable to discredit someone based on their intelligence. If you've ever been on Facebook and someone spells something wrong, even if they made a great point, but they used the wrong there, they're suddenly incompetent and that is enough to discredit someone, right? Yeah. Um, so while it became less, less acceptable socially to discredit people of color based on things like skin color, it was completely acceptable to do it based on intellectual inferiority or these uh, biological inferiority or even used together, right? So discredit's really looking at like how those processes are happening. Like how do we discredit people of color on the basis of ableism? And how do they uphold each other? Because oppression isn't singular as Audre Lorde would tell us, there's no single issue. Um, and there's also no oppression hierarchy, but, the, but these systems really do work together. So even though I center race and racism and ableism and disability to specifically I'm highlighting those things that all it takes all these systems to work together for oppression to be happening uh so yeah yeah and I like I think I started dropping the word intersectionality in our class so um that's that's if like that's one way to look at it right intersectionality intersectional oppressions based on 
identity, et cetera, et cetera. Which is definitely what my work's doing is I'm looking at students of color. Some of the students I interviewed identified as queer. Some were a low, I would say majority identified as coming from a low income background. Uh, I interviewed someone who identified as gender non-binary, gender non-conforming. Uh, so the intersection is definitely something that was coming up. Women of color with disabilities. Uh, so it's definitely something where I, it, it wouldn't, I wouldn't have a holistic picture of that person's experience if I just centered on race. Like if I just centered on race, I'm missing all this other stuff about their disability experience. So kind of going back to this idea of microaggression, if a student does have something like a traumatic brain injury and they're also being perceived because of their race as intellectually inferior, <laughs> there's a lot of dynamics to unpack that's happening. So traditionally in CRT, what people would do is, not all, not all scholars would do this, but, oh, well, we just have to prove that people of color aren't intellectually inferior. But what that does is leave ableism intact as a, a legitimate means to discredit people. So the idea is like move away from this idea of populations being intellectually inferior, which is, is problematic, right? That inferiority is problematic, but we don't destigmatize why intellectual difference is valid to discredit people. Like why don't people with intellectual disabilities have the same like human rights, right? Or, you know, people with intellectual disabilities or other types of disabilities can still be critical and, and yeah, they're, they're still oppressed. And even if you're someone who doesn't have a disability, ableism still affects you. If I, if I or someone else perceives you as intellectual infer intellectually inferior, that is still ableism, whether or not you have a disability. So it's a system that's very pervasive. Um, and was something that was just coming out in my data uh, with students of color, those perceptions. I don't know if that's like quite clear what's happening, but theoretically it's very interesting to unpack that. Huh, thanks for that. And um, I guess this is a good like uh, segue to um, y'all already mentioned racist ableism. Mm -hmm. um, can you like define like I guess in your work, um, <laughs> can you define ableism and and racist ableism, I guess like um, for us, like if you could give us a definition to work with, um, that that's your, ex I would say that's your expertise. You're more, you're more expert than me on that, in that field. Yeah, so how ableism for a long time was thought of um, within disability studies, which there's a lot of talk about like whiteness and disability studies that white disabled experiences were centered. So for a long time it's conceptualized as you know, like oppression of, of disabled people and disabled communities and some, in similar ways that we understand other forms of oppression, that able-bodied experiences are privileged, um, that disability is something that's thought of as less than. So those definitions were fine, but they also ignored things like colonialism and um, eugenics and capitalism and anti-blackness, like the specific history of anti-blackness and ableism. So what I've moved forward with doing is I use T.L. Lewis's working definition of ableism, which I'm going to read because I pulled it up and I think it's really important. But again, it's T.L. Lewis. It's on their blog. 
So ableism, a system that places value on people's bodies and minds based on societally constructed ideas of normalcy, intelligence, excellence, and productivity. These constructed ideas are deeply rooted in anti-blackness, eugenics, colonialism, and capitalism. This form of systemic oppression leads to people and society determining who is valuable and worthy based on a person's appearance and or their ability to satisfactorily reproduce, excel, and behave. You do not have to be disabled to experience ableism. I know, I, I was trying to write down some notes, but I did write T.L. Lewis, um, what I got there, places values on bodies and minds rooted in colonialism, racism, and maybe and, capitalism, yeah. anti-blackness. Yeah, I mean, because we have Black Lives Matter happening in this current moment, like 50% of people killed by cops that are black and brown have disabilities. So there, there is this intersection between race and disability that's very real, but we often, that, that disability part gets erased or not talked about in the same way race and racism is, and they're so interconnected. Uh, and black and brown disabled people are really vulnerable to police violence, but they're not as often talked about in these conversations uh, in the ways that they need to be uh, considered. So race disabilism was uh, a framework that came out of my dissertation work because I was seeing these experiences students were happening in the study that just quite like it wasn't, it was racism, but it was also ableism, but it, it was complex and it was hard to understand what was happening. So racist ableism was this idea using disability critical race theory and critical race theory to understand, to, to name what was happening with students in the study. And it was to describe how particular forms of ableism informed by racist attitudes and beliefs dehumanize people of color based on actual or perceived or inversely lack of perceived disability, thereby reinforcing the relationship between whiteness and ability. So what I'm thinking through is these encounters, if we're thinking of intersectionality, racial microaggressions, gender microaggressions, even though they encapsulate other forms of things, they don't quite mean like how these systems are interacting with each other. So I was seeing in my interview data that students would explain encounters where they were, so one of, one of the people I talked to, uh, Marisol was basically saying in her experience when she wasn't able to get disability services and I was like, well, what do you think was happening? And she's like, well, I don't want to play the race card, but I, I, I think it's because, you know, I, I look black. So she was someone who's biracial, but presented as black. She was like, I look, I'm black. Like, that's what I think was happening was they didn't believe I had a disability. And that came up again and again in my interviews where it's like, yeah, it's ableism, but it's also racism. And perceiving students of color as trying to game the system so they can't get access to the same resources as white students with disabilities. Um, or even like before, before they even get into the college, what was happening was medical doctors were not believing they had disabilities. So I had another participant who um, identified as a black woman and student named Candace, all pseudonyms. Uh, Candace was basically saying, yeah, I, I have chronic migraines and I go into the doctor and because they just have symptoms and not a diagnosis, I can't get access to services. So these are like very real problems where we're seeing, again, it's ableism, but it's not the ableism white people are experiencing. It's something else is happening and it's informed by racism. So, and just calling it racism would sort of erase that there's this very like apparent disability dynamic um, and ableist dynamic happening in their experiences of oppression. 
That's awesome. I mean, like, it sounds horrible, but horrible. like, they, yeah, they like that. Like, whenever I talk to you, I like, I, even though you've, you've told me these things so many times, I always enjoy hearing it again. <laughs> And then from that too, like, um, and you didn't even like touch on it yet, like the relationship. So like you said that medical doctors um, are part of this like- Medical this, industrial yeah, complex. Yeah, I was gonna mention the medical industrial complex, which I remembered from your presentation. Um, like the, in, the relationship between that, the like medical industrial complex, the school push out rates, um, the pipelines, right? The leaking pipelines, and then also the prison. I don't know if you touch on it, like, yeah, but the prison industrial complex. So all of those institutions, like, use or are working on, like, under racist, ableist practices and ideology, right? Yeah, most definitely. So yeah, I was really inspired by Subini Anima's work. She focuses on intersections. She's one of the discrete scholars that like conceptualized discrete along with uh, David Connor and Beth Ferry. And so what she was looking at was incarcerated youth of color, specifically girls and interviewing them to find out more about the school to prison pipeline, which if you're not familiar, it's how basically how students of color, particularly black and brown students, I'm not saying this also doesn't happen with AAPI students because we do see this when we disaggregate data that this is happening also in the A. Asian, Asian American, Pacific Islander, if you don't know AAP. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, we haven't even touched on it yet in class, but we, we touched on the black-white binary, but that black-white binary applies to Latinos and Asians, who's the white Asian, who's the, bl who's the black Asian, yes. most of us, about these Asians. Yeah, and Up Against Whiteness talks about that in terms of, like, the Hmong community being ideologically whitened or ideologically blackened, which doesn't mean that like these students are having white experiences or benefiting from white supremacy, but that there, there is a spectrum of like the, the good minorities and the bad minorities. Yeah. Um, and we do see that happening with like Hmong who are refugees oftentimes in refugee communities uh, who are impacted by these carceral systems. I specifically say carceral and not justice system because it is not a system of justice. It is a carceral system uh, with punitive prison, et cetera. But yeah, so Stephanie Anima's work really uh, inspired me to look at higher ed because she's, she interviews girls and youth of color specifically because the school to prison pipeline has focused on men. Uh, and boy, or not even men, right? Like, because it's boys and youth. It's not, you know, eventually, like when they grow up, sure. But like specifically it's focused on boys and youth and these outcomes they have. But she looks at girls specifically and what's happening and a lot of specifically queer identity too, right? Like a lot of the, uh, she talks about this in pedagogy of pathologization, but specifically like queer girls of color are impacted by the school to prison pipeline, which essentially, yeah, criminalizes children through schools who eventually get pushed out. Um, traditionally, we understood the school to prison pipeline was criminalization, so like school discipline, 
then school discipline leading to suspension expulsion, uh, particularly if there's police in schools, uh, it becomes much faster to be criminalized within schools when police are present in there, um, which is why we're having these conversations about defunding police and removing them from schools like LAUSD. And then once a student is expelled from school, suspended, their chance of being incarcerated like goes up by a lot. So. Uh, these students end up in carceral systems, whether that's juvenile and carceral system, carceral systems, or sometimes adult, right? Like we see kids put in these adult carceral systems. So what Stupini did was she was looking at, you know, girls, youth of color who were in these systems and how, like what, what process happened leading them there. One of the things she talks about, that's not just specific to girls, um, but also boys, is that special education placement is a mechanism in the school to prison pipeline. Uh, and I'm pretty sure she talks about it specifically in the article that you will be reading in the class or have read at this point. So um, if not, she talks about it in her text, Pedagogy of Pathologization. But yeah, special education is a mechanism in this process because when you're, you're labeled with disabilities that we consider more subjective, like emotional, behavioral, uh, like these disconnects between teachers just not understanding, especially white teachers not understanding students of color, they're, they're quick to label them with like, not being res like resistance, but like there's something wrong with you. They pathologize students of color. So it, it increases this risk of ending up suspended, expelled school discipline. Like when we think about like special education <laughs> as a system, yeah. So yeah, it's a mechanism and she says it's a mechanism. So I, I, I was reading that work and I was like, well, what happens to like who graduates college <laughs> or like who goes to college? Like, so we know a bunch of students of color being incarcerated. So I was like, where, who is getting into college with disabilities? Like, and specifically students of color. Like I wanted to know, like, how did you get to college um, despite these like overwhelmingly like <laughs> this breakdown in the education system? So that, that was why I wanted to focus. I noticed there wasn't a lot of literature on uh, disabled students of color, specifically at four years. And when we think about four years in terms of social mobility, it's really important. So I was like, well, what factors led to students getting to this place? And so that's part of what I'm exploring is what factors led students getting to that place. And of all the students I interviewed, only one had been in special education. So that means the nine other students like didn't have to go through special education. So arguably like special education, we kind of know this, like you're not on a college track. Generally. And this person was only able to get on a college track because they advocated to get out of special education. And yeah. Dude, and it's probably hard to like, so I, we just, so earlier this week, we talked to Enrique and he told us all about the referral system. Oh, you know him, yeah. Um, <laughs> so he told us all about the referral system um, and why it's important for him as a counselor to be aware of the frameworks that you were talking about. Um, and then he also added another like, well, yeah so anyway well like, and think about it too like even if you don't end up in the school to prison pipeline just being placed in special education like you're not given access to college curriculum oftentimes you're segregated from the rest of your community like in the school you're in a separate building or even like just like if you look on the campus map like you don't see disabled students like right like think about it <laughs> you don't see them like in your day-to-day um, or that might be why a lot of people associate disabilities specifically with wheelchairs. Um, 
which is weird because that's an object and not a person. But people like think of like a person in a wheelchair that's a disability. Uh, because maybe those are the only visible types of disabilities we see in society a lot of times. Um, but yeah, even if someone doesn't end up in the school to prison pipeline, they're still being set up in terms of like social mobility, which we can question social mobility as a process anyways. But yeah, like you just already giving them disparate outcomes, placing someone in special ed. Like you're saying you're, they're not going to college, right? Yeah. Uh, that there aren't special education students who get into college, but it makes it a lot harder. Same with English language learners, right? Like emergent bilinguals, we see these same issues that when you're placed into these programs, it is really hard to get out. Even as a monolingual English speaker, they kept me in that program for months because of- Yeah, um, it essentially just used your, your last name and your language as a proxy for race, which we kind of like mentioned, talked about a little bit. Yeah. Um, and then how like, fluency in English um, is like, like ability is mapped onto that um, thing, uh, on that thing, that, uh, that category. With my teacher educators that if you, if you don't speak, if you speak a second language and your English is perceived as less than, so standard, standard English is a dialect. Like the English we speak in academia is just one of like 24 dialects of English in the U.S. <laughs> And if you speak any other dialect uh, or, or a different language and you're learning English or, you know, you're maybe not quite at fluency, you're literally perceived as intellectually inferior. So you could be able to have like this conversation about, I don't know, a topic in STEM in your native language, but because you can't do it in English, people just assume like there's like class assumptions, there's intellectual ability, ableist assumptions. So that's very real. Yeah. Thanks for that. I'm so glad we got here. Um, so, I mean, you, so you, I guess like, because this is, we, we talked about, about a lot of like topics um, and then with, all, with considering all of that, now I guess like, and and throughout too, you've been like um, telling us like what to think about, how to complicate um, our ideas of disability, our ideas of of the tracking system, right? Um, so um, again, like for us, like what what do all of these things um, like mean or should mean for educators? Like I guess like. Um, because like student, like our students want like, like, well, we know all of this happens, but what can we do as, as this single teacher in a classroom or this single counselor in the, in the district? Because sometimes it happens, you only have one <laughs> counselor for like five schools, which I think is Enrique's situation. Yeah. Um, well, it's hard because one, we have to like recognize, like even within higher ed, we're agents of like a historically racist ableist institution. So us as individual actors, I'm not saying we don't have agency, but it, it's hard to resist when we're, we're in those, those systems, right? So, I mean, it has to move beyond diversity and inclusion initiatives. Like our goal should be liberation, which we're figuring out right like but I, I, it's always like you know if you're if you're going to education and you 
you know, your goal is racial justice, you have to practice that from day one, because there's always going to be a reason why you can't do it. Like, oh, I'll lose my job. Um, if I have those conversations with my students, uh, and you'll, there'll always be some reason why you can't do it, right? So if you're not starting to do it now, you're not going to do it later. So making a commitment early, or when you realize that these systems are oppressive, uh, that you have to start putting in the work, it looks different for students of color and white students. <laughs> There's just different things we're going to have to focus on. Um, something like a lot of communities of color specifically non-black people, like like in the Latinx community, like we're having to really think about anti-blackness and like unpack what that means in our communities and our families. So yeah, it's gonna, it's gonna look different. But um, I think making that commitment, uh, it's hard to say like what, you know, yeah. being even aware that like a special education placement can be so detrimental <laughs> to a student, like just awareness of, Thinking through like that, yeah, someone's ability to speak English isn't a reflection of like their intellectual abilities, but yeah, I'm so much, I, it's hard. Like I struggle with this too, like of what teachers can do. Um, there's like small things like don't anglicize students' names. Like if their name is. Well, there's just one thing like that that went viral this oh, right. professor, um he asked a vietnamese student to anglicize their name um instead of of learning how to say it yeah just um, yeah or like, yeah yeah like or like um a lot of um well i, I at least for like east asian names or actually just any Asian names, South Asian, all the Asian names. <laughs> um, if you have a name like that, like, yeah, all the Asian names, like there's always like this trend of like, well, what's your American name? What's your, what's your English name? Um, so. Yeah, I think with Asian students, it's usually like the assumption that you have to have an American name. And then with like Latinx students, it's like, oh, well, your name's, gonna be, I don't know, your name's Carlos, you're gonna be Chuck now. <laughs> like, just, just like, like Charles? Like, what? Carlos? And then to Chuck. Um, and <laughs> they're just like, this is that? Why? Um, well, I know why. National identity. Policy, yeah. yeah. Just throw some words out there. Um, Google. But yeah, it's like educators do have a lot of power. Like I do believe in educators resisting and like being able to recognize your students' resistance. One of the things I love about Subini Anima's work is it's not just this like deficit thinking, focusing on, well, the students are in the system. They're not, they're not like passively like in the system, they're actively resisting. So sometimes students make choices about, not doing something deliberately. Like it's it's not because they don't know something or they don't know how to do something, but they're making a choice that maybe to, to an educator seems like they're not acting in their best interest, but it's them resisting like a very oppressive system. And sometimes it's just like finding their student voice or making these decisions uh, that maybe from an educator standpoint seem nonsensical, but they're not at all, right? Like there's student resistance and we should like uplift and value students that are you know, resisting the system, you know, what we, we tend to do is like, no, you need to conform. And if you don't conform, like, these are the consequences, like 
carceral systems or being placed in special education because you don't meet some normativity of how a student's supposed to behave in a classroom. So, but I do think educators can also, you know, practice this resistance in the system. So, you know, like things like monolingualism, just valuing one language in the classroom. You know, Prop 227 for a long time was really, really terrible, right? Um, and we're still feeling yeah. like notifications. Yeah, that's the, uh, the 9098 English only for the children one. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, even like allowing students or like knowing that African American vernacular English is has a system and rules. It's a language or um, depending, I guess, with linguists, it's a language or a dialect. But the thing is, it has value, it has system, it has rules. And that's some black students come in speaking AABE or parts of AABE with standard English. So not immediately devaluing someone because you don't have this like cultural understanding or um, giving students the tools to understand that they are like in a system. So learning standard English, we know with things like getting to honors classes, you have to learn these rules which help you get into college, et cetera, et cetera. But even just exposing that those things exist and that they're happening, I think can be really powerful for students. So you know, like respecting their voices and yeah, I, it just can't be like diversity inclusion. Like I'm going to throw in some books that have, have students of color in it. Like that's not enough. <laughs>
and, and unpacking that or um, just like continuing to, I think like to continue to educate yourself um, with with a community of, of educators who are also invested in that work so that you can share and um, yeah, you just you just have someone to like a group to fall back on um, because these like and and part of being in a community is hearing out um, the experiential knowledge experiences of those in that in that small community that you're in, right? So that's that's something nice to look forward to. Yeah, the experiential knowledge thing is like that's so key to my research is centering like I believe what students tell me. <laughs> Like, there's not really an incentive to lie, but we, we, we position students as, you know, like, we they have value and we should listen to their voices. Like, even just listening to student voices and, like, finding spaces to hear them out um, about their experiences and believing them and, like, valuing them and believing in students because students know when you have <laughs> deficit perceptions of them. <laughs> you think less of them or, or if they you think that they're a bad kid. And I think you see that in... Um, Sudanese piece that you're reading in class or you will have read at this point that students knew when teachers thought they were stupid right like they say that like like I think she says it comes up like 57 times where students like this perception isn't that ridiculous 57 times <laughs> that is less than so I think that yeah that's important and finding community I think is important too like in interdependence not independence but working together and finding those support systems to do this work um, is sustaining and also finding like places to heal because it, it is hard to do this work and healing is important um, just to ha have those spaces where you can not like reset kind of reset right like those healing spaces um, where you're not necessarily stepping away from the work but you're healing so that you can keep doing the work so yes that's awesome so I guess like with uh, like I don't want to take more of your time, but this is this is a great way to end. Um, I mean, like, yeah, you you explained a lot of like really heavy stuff. You shared your work with us, and for that we're we're grateful. And and um, as a community, right, we're grateful to you. Um, yeah. No. I'm letting me talk about my work on your class podcast. <laughs> yeah. Wait, what? Your class podcasts have a name? Um, no, it's just education. <laughs> well, it's gonna be on. Um, I've been uploading my lectures on um, Rude Rude Girls Research Collective, and then the author name is called Rude Girlfriend. <laughs> it's it. supposed to be a feminist space, <laughs> um, feminist critical space. But then, like, COVID happened, and then, and then lectures needed to be uploaded. <laughs> Yeah, I get that. I do synchronously, so. Yeah. All right. I'm going to stop recording. Thank you.